invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to Ecclesiastes 5. Beginning a two-part message uh, that will cover the whole of Ecclesiastes. I'm going to do it over the two morning sermons. I'm not going to bump uh, the part two into the evening this evening or anything of that sort. Uh, but we are going to cover the entirety of Ecclesiastes 5. We, got, uh, we went a little slowly through Ecclesiastes 3 and 4. Slowed down recognizing these points of God's design. Uh, we understood what Solomon was saying to us in chapter 3. That to everything there is a season. And a time to every work under the sun, recognizing that God hath made all things beautiful in his time, that he is in control. And then we spent two months, really, considering those things that would challenge that statement. God is in control. Things that challenge that statement. God is in control. What do we do with oppression? God is in control. What do we do with corruption? God is in control. What do we do with death? God is in control. What do we do with uh, greed and ambition, uh, improper ambition? What do we do with these things? If God is in control, why does he allow these things to happen? And we address that for, for many, many weeks. Well, this week we're kind of putting the cherry on top, the capstone, over the next two weeks really, the capstone on this. This is the end of the second section. So recall, if you if you have an outline, I don't think there's any on the back table, we'll try to get them back out. But I give you an outline at the beginning of every book, right? And if you looked at, at, that, at that outline for Ecclesiastes, you'll notice that we broke it into four major chunks. And at the end of each chunk is kind of a, a doxology, where, where Solomon gives a, a great statement of God, and of what he does, of his design, and of, of, of a conclusion. And we're going to look at that conclusion next week as we get to the end of Ecclesiastes 5. But in the beginning, the first several verses that we're going to cover this morning, uh, we're going to begin considering this capstone of God's design. If God is in control, if God has designed everything, so if this is not a random world that we live in, if it's not all an accident, if we're not just a bunch of, of microbes that somehow goo to you turned into us, and we're not just a bunch of animals that are that function only by stimulus and response, if there is design and if there is a creator and we are created and God wants to have a relationship with us and, and God has a design that he's put into place that we live in, so if we live in his, if we live in, 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 in his world, that he's designed to function his way, and God is God, well then, it would behoove us to identify it, to align with it, because that's where blessing is found. And we're going to begin talking about that this morning. Several principles under the banner, if God is God. If God is God, then what does that mean for you? If God is God, then even in the midst of corruption and oppression and death and greed and evil of all sorts... If these realities do not threaten God being God, so that we can rightly say that God is God, then what does that mean for us? Let's dig right in. If God is God, well then enter his presence with ears open and mouth shut. If God is God, then enter his presence with your ears open and your mouth shut. Look at verse 1. The Bible says, keep thy foot... When thou goest into the house of God, and be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools, for they consider not 
that they do evil. All of the things which Solomon tells us, he, of all the things that Solomon tells us he regrets as he walks through the book of Ecclesiastes, he, he gives us a lot of regrets. He tells us a lot of things that he did that he calls vanity and vexation of spirit. Things that end up being effectively worthless to him. Of all the things that he says he regrets, one of the things that you won't read that he regrets is the time where he was building the temple. Early on in his, in his reign, he built the temple of God. David had set aside all of the materials for him. Remember, God said David could not build that temple because David was a man that was defined by war. He was a bloody man. And God wanted his temple to be defined by peace. So he said, David, you may not build my temple, but I am going to allow your son to build it. So Solomon builds it and he, he has a grand ceremony and it's, it's, it's a beautiful prayer that he gives there in scripture where he commits himself and the nation to the Lord. And uh, he re- reinvigorates the covenant between Israel and between God. And, and we read nothing of regrets in regard to that time of his life. When he was serving the Lord, when he was walking with the Lord, when he built the temple and he was doing great things for God. And notice what he says here. He says, when you go into the house of God, keep thy foot. Now, the idea of keeping thy foot when you go into the house of God is the same thing as saying, watch your step or, or watch carefully or walk carefully. In the case uh, of Solomon here, he was giving uh, um, a, a warning, not so much about, you know, it, it, he didn't put a cone at the front of the temple that says, watch your step. It wasn't because the floor was wet or because there was a step, you know, we have a piece of yellow tape on the step over here so you don't trip and fall when you come into the audience. It wasn't that. That's not what Solomon means when he says, keep thy foot. He's not saying they need to watch their step in a physical sense. He's speaking metaphorically here. He's saying when you Enter into the presence of God to worship. Enter thoughtfully. Enter deliberately. Enter fearfully, humbly, carefully, in a spiritual sense. You know, there's so much that needs to be said here. We'll talk a little bit more about it when we get to our application toward the end of the service. But we live in an irreverent society, don't we? It is an irreverent society, a society that elevates comfort and convenience above decorum. I wanted to give a bunch of examples here. I wanted to put up a bunch of pictures. I ended up not doing it. But I remember a big controversy uh, several years ago when there was a, a team of, of young ladies, athletes, who had won some championship. And so the president hosted them at the White House. And they showed up in flip-flops. And they showed up in, in, in just standard attire. And there was a big to-do about that. When you go to meet the president of the United States, are you really going to wear flip-flops and are you really not going to you're not going to dress up and you're not going to do your hair and you're not going to you're, you're, you're not going to look nice at all and there was a big to-do about that but but that's the postmodern society we live in isn't it it's an irreverent society there's no reverence anymore you look back at the 20s and 30s and what i'm wearing today would be worn to a baseball game why well not because baseball deserved the reverence but because they were going out And so they dressed up. And this irreverence, I'm not saying anything about whether that's right or wrong. You know, we could debate that. That's not really a debate for for today. But, But this irreverence is a problem when it rubs off on how we worship, isn't it? It is a problem when it rubs off on how we approach God. In prayer, worship, even obedience. The essence of worship, the word itself literally means to ascribe worth unto. 
All throughout scripture, we find definitive expectations that God's people would approach his presence with gravity. There was a day when Moses was shepherding on the backside of the desert. He'd been there for some 40 years. And he notices a bush that's burning on a mountain. And it's not being consumed. So he approaches this bush, trying to figure out why the bush is burning, but, the, but it's not being consumed. And a voice comes out from that bush. And in Exodus chapter 3, verse 5, the voice says this, Draw not nigh hither, put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. The first thing God, now God sought out Moses, right? And Moses comes to God, having been sought out by God. And the first thing God tells him, when Moses comes to God, God having initiated this through the burning bush, and God says, stop there, take off your shoes, you're in the presence of holiness. The Almighty God would not regard him until he had placed himself in the proper place before God. I'm not going to listen, I'm not going to interact with you, I'm not going to talk to you until you put yourself in the proper place. Until you show me the reverence that is due unto me. And this is the idea, I believe, that Solomon espouses here. That when you enter into the presence of God, watch your step. Go deliberately, go reverently. Now, I'm not explicitly saying when you enter into the church building. I'm, I'm broadening this, okay? I'm not talking about you better wear what you better wear. What I'm talking about here is your heart attitude and as reflected in your actions, as reflected probably in your appearance as well, if we're being honest, it all really ought to reflect some reverence when you're worshiping, when you're worshiping God. Go deliberately, go reverently, because you're entering into the presence of God. Now, we don't only enter into the presence of God when we meet on a Sunday morning. We don't only enter the presence of God when we enter into the church building. But when we are going to deliberately worship, let's be reverential in heart, in spirit, in intent. Go deliberately, go reverently, but may I also mention go obediently? Ponder the path that your feet are taking you as you go into the house of God. Pastor, if a man is entering into the house of God, obviously his feet are taking him there, right? Yes, but what Solomon is saying again, what he's saying is somewhat metaphorical here. Keep thy foot. Consider the direction. Don't be double-minded when walking into the house of God. Don't walk to the house of God in body while opposing him in spirit and intent. This is called hypocrisy. It's an outworking of pride, whereby a man believes he can live outwardly one way, live inwardly another way, and still please God. Or perhaps fool God into thinking he's something he's not. In other words, when we start our service, and, and again, this is not just something that we, we, we do at church. Church uh, is something that we've chosen. We choose to meet on Sunday mornings. We could just as easily choose to meet on a Tuesday morning or on a Saturday morning. Uh, but culturally, we, we've chosen to meet on Sundays, and this is what we do, and we come together, and this is worship, and, and this is a, a time where this applies. But, but when we are choosing to come before God, let us be careful that we're doing so, that we're, we're doing it deliberately. Whether that's your prayer time in the mornings, whether that's some evangelistic activity on a Thursday night, whether that's a Sunday morning service, whether that's when you and another couple are getting together just to have a time of iron sharpening iron, 
Would you approach God deliberately, reverently, obediently? This is why we do our preparation before our service on Sunday mornings. It's a time for us to make sure that our hearts are adjusted, right? To make sure that we are ready. To make sure that we have placed ourselves. To make sure we've taken off our shoes knowing that we're going to try to step into holy ground. To come before the Lord. To worship Him in spirit and in truth. And that's the idea here. Solomon says, "Be and, and, and he says that as you keep your foot, as you watch the way you're going, here's what he says. He says, be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of, uh, of fools. Now we see a contrast here between two ideas. The first is hearing. The second is the sacrifice of fools. We're going to find out a little bit more about what that means, the sacrifice of fools, as we continue in verse 2. Uh, the fact that these two have put a contrast to one another, however, gives us insight into what Solomon is saying. In James chapter 1, verse 19, James warns us of this. He says, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, excuse me, chapter 9, 1, verse 19, did I say that backwards? Uh, James 1, 19. Uh, Wherefore, he says, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. We are prone, some of us more than others, to listen quickly and speak quickly, right? To, if I may put it this way, to, to speak quickly but hear slowly. So we don't listen for very long, and then we already have an opinion. We already have an answer. We already have a direction we want to go. We answer questions before they're given. We speak to someone before we have all the facts, or to something before we have all the facts. Uh, it doesn't take much more than looking at, at the news today and the political situation to understand that people often speak before thinking, right? And people often make broad, brushing statements before they have all the facts. But you know, we assume way too much as humans. It's one of our failings. Solomon warns in Proverbs 18, verse 13, He that answereth a matter before he heareth it, it is folly and shame unto him. Most of the time, when I've gotten myself, when my mouth has gotten me into a, into a situation where I'm embarrassed or I have to recant or I have to apologize, it's because I've spoken before I've thought. Or I've spoken before I've thought everything through. Or I've put myself out there where I really have no business putting myself out there to begin with. Those that answer first and listen later will be brought to shame because they will see, say things that reflect incorrect judgments and that likely they would not have if they just simply waited and listened. In this case, however, Solomon is speaking about you and God, not so much about you in society. He's talking about you and God. Just like you should listen and learn and get all the facts before answering a matter before men, so too you should listen, learn, and get all the facts before answering a matter before God. And this premise is going to lead Solomon into a warning about vows, which we'll consider some today and uh, some as well. Well, primarily uh, this morning we'll, we'll consider this. But in this verse, we again need to understand some important principles about what it means to approach God in worship and obedience. Just as society has a reverence problem, society has an obedience problem as well. People don't follow directions very well. And the question becomes, is willing ignorance an excuse for wrong action? Is willing ignorance an excuse for wrong action? My girls are five and a half years old. And as such, they're in that phase uh, where we'll tell them to do something and it won't get done. And they are, are doing well enough with their critical thinking to say, well, if I can plead ignorance, then maybe I'll get mercy. 
So whether they heard it or not, they'll come up and say, well, I didn't hear you. As a matter of fact, I just had to deal with this yesterday. My daughter and my son were in the same location and they were playing and we were moving on. We were in a store and we were moving on past that point. So I said, Karis, Benjamin, come. Benjamin came and Karis didn't. And so I'm waiting for her. And I was looking at something else, waiting, seeing how long it would take for her to come. She finally comes, and I asked her, why didn't you come immediately? And she says, well, I didn't hear you. Well, but your brother was right next to you, and he heard me, right? So we're pleading ignorance, where there really is no ignorance to be found. All the way to the fact that you can have somebody look you in the eyes, one of your children. I I can have them look me in the eyes. I can tell them something. I can hear a yes, sir. And they can (laughs) still plead ignorance. And sometimes that's just disobedience, but other times, what is that? Other times, they're so busy thinking about something else, or their mind is so busy thinking about what they're going to tell me that they don't listen to what I'm telling them. We do this all the time. I do this all the time. My wife asks about something, and I'm so busy thinking about what I'm going to answer her that I actually don't listen to what she says. And then I give her an answer, and the answer really doesn't have anything to do with what she said because I didn't listen to her question before I gave the answer. We are too swift to speak. Now, it's one thing, as I mentioned, one to another. But how often do we do this with God? See, this is where Solomon's going with this, right? He says, keep thy foot when thou goest into the house of God, when you're going to worship God, when you're going in the presence of God, when you're going to learn things of God. You came in here this morning, and we sat down, and we did a preparation, we sang songs, and we prayed, and now you're listening to a sermon. And whether it was the Sunday school hour and the lesson that we had there, and we talked about honoring parents, and we talked about obedience and these sorts of things, or whether it's now as we talk about uh, this idea of keeping our, our, our ears open and our mouth shut, some of you came in this morning with this idea that, that God, this is what I'm going to get out of this morning, and you're, you're, you're so busy telling God what you want to learn, or what you intend to do, or what you're going to get out of it, that you're not listening. You, you came in with your, your, your spiritual mouth open and your spiritual ears shut. You came in to get something from God that you expect rather than to take from God what He wants of you. And that's what we need to be careful about. That we get so focused on what we want, on what God, what we think God should want us to do, or what we think God should do for us, or what we think God should be in our own minds, that we don't stop to listen to what God has already told us. That we don't stop to listen to what He's already told us we should be. That we don't stop to listen to what He already told us we should do. And as we even talked about in Sunday school this morning, culture, culturally, we as a church can spend so much time making excuses for why we don't believe God that we can miss what God actually wants of us. Not because we overtly say, I'm not listening, but because we're too busy telling God what we think to listen to what God thinks. When I think of this, I think of when I was younger, those gumball machines that they had at grocery stores. I don't know if they still have those. I haven't really looked in a while. I suppose they probably still do. But uh, every once in a while, my parents would be willing to, to give us each a quarter to go get one of those gumballs. And, and I remember a, a time where I would say, I want 
this color gumball. And I look at my parents and say, Mom and Dad, I want a green gumball. And they try to lovingly explain to me it doesn't work that way, right? You put in the quarter, you turn the thing, and then whatever comes out, comes out. But there have been times, I I can remember a time, and I can remember it with my children, times where there's something completely out of my control, like what color the gumball is going to be. And when I turn that crank and the gumball comes out and it's not green, it's yellow, I get angry. I wanted a green one. Why didn't I get a green one? And I look at mom and dad and say, I wanted a green one. And mom and dad, look, you turn the crank, something falls out. I I have no control over this. We spend so much time telling ourselves what we want that we lose sight of the fact that it's not about us all the time. Little do we consider sometimes that I, my parents... Didn't really have any control over what color the gumball is. So I spent all of that thought and all of those words asking for something I have no control over. And there were times when I would get upset over things that we had no control over. Well, this is exactly what Solomon's warning us about. He's warning us against coming before God with what he calls the sacrifice of fools. With my own ideas, with my own thoughts, with my own demands, and demand that God should conform himself to me. Well, God, you don't understand. I am this way. This is what I want. This is where I am. This is where society is. This is what we're like today. You don't understand. He says when you enter the presence of God, into the house of God, into worship of God, you need to understand that God is God. And if God is God, then you need to enter in with your ears open and your mouth shut. God owes you nothing. God does not need you. And when you come to God, we are to come God's way, not our way. We are to come in reverence, ready to hear, ready to learn, ready to obey, with our mouth prepared to remain shut. To not talk back, to not argue back to God, to not contend with his designs, but to identify his designs and to align with his designs and so to please God. From the very beginning, man has been trying to approach God in worship his own way. To approach God and say, God, I'm going to come before you and I'm going to come with a right, uh, with, 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 with all genuineness, but I'm going to come my own way. I'm going to do it my way and I'll just expect you to be fine with that. But God has never once, you can look in the Bible, God has never once accepted man's idea. God has never once accepted a man who says, God, I'm going to come to you, but I'm going to do it my way, not your way. And God has never once said, well, at least you're coming. At least you're coming. So I'm okay with that. At least you're coming. All the way back to Genesis chapter 4. This happened with Cain and Abel, didn't it? Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. The Bible says this. And Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain. And said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And she again bare his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought forth the fruit of the ground and offering unto the Lord. And Abel, he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and his offering. And it goes on to say that the Lord did not have respect unto Cain's offering. Here we have a circumstance where two men brought offerings to the Lord. Now Abel brought the first of the flock, and he sacrificed the first of the flock unto the Lord. He brought the first fruit. That's what God wants. God wants the first fruit. And he brought a blood sacrifice, which we learn as we continue through the scriptures, that without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin, right? It needed to be a blood sacrifice. And by the way, we don't have it here explicitly, but we know as we continue in the account that God made this very clear to both Cain and Abel. I want a lamb. I want a blood sacrifice. I want the first fruit of the flock. Now Cain also brought 
brought the first fruit. He brought the first fruit. God wanted the first fruit. But he had a different idea. He said, well, here's the thing. I'm a farmer. I'm a tiller of the ground. So instead of bringing the first fruit of an animal and shedding its blood, I'm going to bring the first fruit of my crops. And I'm going to offer that before the Lord. It's the first fruit. It's the first of what he has. There's probably some degree of sincerity in his heart as he does it. But here's the problem. He didn't do it God's way. It was a first fruit sacrifice. It was quite possibly even the very best that Cain had to offer. Took the biggest vegetables he had and plopped them on that altar and lit them on fire. But it wasn't God's way. He was so busy having his mouth open telling God how he thought he should worship God that he didn't stop to listen to how God said to worship. He had his mouth open and his ears shut instead of his ears open and his mouth shut. And so God rejected him. And the Bible says that Cain was very upset, that his countenance fell. He was very upset that God rejected his offering. Notice what God then says to him in verses 6 and 7 of Genesis 4. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth? It means angry. Why is thy countenance, thy face, fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door, and unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. God says, look, if you'll just listen to what I've told you I want from you, and do it my way, then you'll be accepted. If you'll just stop talking and start listening. If you'll just stop trying to do it your way and start trying to do it my way, then I'll accept you. God wasn't rejecting Cain here. God was rejecting Cain's unacceptable worship. So Cain had no one to blame but himself. Because it isn't that God made it, didn't make his expectations clear. It's that Cain wanted to worship God his way. He spent so much time with his mouth open and his ears shut that he wasn't listening to what God wanted from him. And that's the sacrifice of fools. He did not even consider that his deed was evil. But if God is God, then let's listen to the way he wants it. And let's do it his way. We need to stop telling God what we think he should be, what we think he should expect, what we think uh, about him agreeing with our perspectives. We might as well go and lecture the tides on how to ebb and flow. Or go to lecture the sun on when it should rise and when it should set. Or go to lecture the skies on when the rain should come. Go outside on a rainy day and say, you know what, rain, I think you should come back tomorrow. You stay, just, just not, not today, come back tomorrow and see what the rain does. It's not going to listen. It's not going to listen. And you know, God has a design. It flows from His character. And we can convene a panel and we can go to God and we can say, God, here's the thing. We've written up a treatise on how we think you can do this thing better. And these are the things that we're, we like and we're fine with those. And these are the things we don't like and we're not okay with those. And those need to change. These are our, these are our, our, our things we accept. These are our suggestions and these are our demands. But it's not going to work. God has already told us what he expects of us. And it's ours not to contend with the Almighty, but to align with the Almighty. 
And we can talk about all sorts of different times where man has tried to worship God his way. We can talk about the golden calf in Aaron's day. We can talk about the golden calf in Jeroboam's day. We could talk about the worship uh, all throughout Israel's history, really. We can talk about Baal. We can talk about Molech. All of the different ways that people tried to worship. And oftentimes, in the name of Jehovah God. But it's not enough. It's the sacrifice of fools. When we enter into the house of God, the presence of God, into worship of God, we need to keep our foot. We need to watch our step. We need to do it God's way. Not our own. He continues in verses 2 and 3. Solomon says, Be not rash with thy mouth, and let not thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God, for God is in heaven, and thou upon earth. Therefore let thy words be few. For a dream cometh through the multitude of business, and a fool's voice is known by a multitude of words. This is, this is what we've been saying. Solomon's saying it. He warns here not to allow your heart to be hasty to utter things before God. Remember, we're talking about true worship here, not sitting before, not, not sitting in seats at church. We're talking about when you worship God, whether that's at home, whether that's in the car, whether that's here at church, uh, no matter where it is, when you worship God, don't be hasty. When you approach God, have your ears open, have your mouth shut. We're so hasty to open our mouths before engaging our minds. But the stakes are higher with God. And this is the warning that Solomon gives. Don't be rash with your mouth. Don't be hasty in the presence of God with claims. Now, now again, we'll, we'll see as we continue here, we're going to talk about vows. But Solomon is saying here, uh, he's not saying here, don't pray. He's not saying here, don't talk with God. We'll see in a moment, we're talking about vowing. He's not warning against making requests. He's warning against making promises. He's warning against how we approach God. And the reason why is because God is in heaven and we are in earth. That when you tell someone on this earth, I will do something, and then you fail to do it, you might be found in a bad spot. You might be found, you know, if you say you're going to pay off debt, and then you don't pay off debt, you incur interest. If you say you're going to do something and you don't, you lose trust, those sorts of things. But when you say to God, the God of heaven, I will do something, or when you say to the God of heaven, I want something, I I will listen, I will obey, I will learn. When you come before God and you get on your knees and you say, God, teach me something, or God, help me to learn something, or God, make me what you would have me to be. Uh, make sure that that, that that worship is genuine, because God is God. And the the stakes are higher when we interact with God. Solomon uses an analogy here to help us understand the connection between foolishness and much speaking. That if you have your mouth open all the time, if you're constantly telling God what, what for, if you're constantly trying to do things your own way, if you're, if you're not listening, if you're too hasty to utter words, he says it's, it's similar to, a dr- to, to dreams. He says dreams come through a multitude of business. So too a fool is known through the multitude of words. Oftentimes our most uh, potent dreams come when things are busiest, right? When there's thing, major things on our hearts. Have you ever been consumed by something so much during the day that, that it has encroached into your dreams? And then you realize, wow, that thing is really on my mind because it's found its way into my dreams. I remember uh, one hectic summer working fast food where all of my dreams smelled of french fries. I, I, it was just, I, it was so hectic, it was so busy, I was, it was just, I, I just, all of my dreams were invaded by that restaurant. 
There are times where we're so consumed with projects or so consumed with worries or so consumed with fears that we dream about that person we're worried about, that we we dream about that person we long for. I was talking to a person in the jail the other day and he was saying he doesn't want to sleep because then he dreams about his family and he wants to be with them. And, 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 and whether it was poetic or not, these things do happen, don't they? That through the multitude of business, it even encroaches into our dreams. Well, Solomon uses this as an illustration. He says, in the same way that much business makes you dream about it, so that you know exactly what is on your mind. You can, say, you can know exactly what is consuming your heart. Even if during the day you say, you know what, whatever, that doesn't, it doesn't matter to me. If you dream about it, you know it does, right? In that same way, Solomon says, it doesn't matter if, if, if you say you're not a fool. You can know a fool by the multitude of his words. Just as you know what's on your heart by the multitude of your dreams, so you know a fool by the multitude of his words. And if you are a fool, the fastest way to reveal it is by opening your mouth, right? Now, take note here that the opposite is not necessarily true. Don't necessarily think that because a person doesn't open his mouth, he's not a fool, right? Proverbs 17.28 says this, Even a fool, when he holdeth his peace, is counted wise. And he that shutteth his lips is esteemed a man of understanding. So that strong, silent type. The old adage goes, better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to speak out and remove all doubt, right? But often it is men of few words that have the most wisdom to share. And there is without a doubt a correlation between those who speak often and those who are fools. Once again, it gives you insight into media and politics today, right? So we consider the initial point from verses 1 through 3. If God is God, enter into his presence with ears open and mouth shut. Our second point is in verses 4 through 6. And this is all we'll get through today and this morning. If God is God, watch your words and make good on your promises. If God is God, first, enter into his presence with your ears open and your mouth shut. Be ready to hear. Be slow to, to, to speak and slow to wrath. Be swift to hear. But then if God is God, watch your words and make good on your promises. Solomon says in verse 4, When thou vowest a vow unto God, defer not to pay it, for he hath no pleasure in fools. Pay that which thou hast vowed. The Bible has much to say about making vows unto God. I preached an entire sermon on the principles of vows a little while back at the beginning of our series in 1 Samuel. I encourage you to go back and listen to that if you're interested. And the simple and clear expectation of God concerning a vow unto him was this. If you vow a vow to God, you will not break your word. God will hold you to your vow. Now the Bible doesn't say we shouldn't make vows, only that we should be very careful not to make a vow we don't intend on keeping. And take careful note as well that Solomon is not just speaking about vows to God, but also vows to others in the name of God. This is why Solomon's warning against the multitude of words is so strong. Because fools often make vows they cannot keep, and this is abhorrent unto God. He has no pleasure in fools. Now, uh, 
if you go back to that message, you'll find that there were some times, as God has designed it, where a vow could be undone, particularly in the case of if a child made it, uh, and they were still, a, particularly a daughter made it, and she was still under the authority of her parents, or if a wife made a vow under the authority of her husband, her husband or her father had the authority to nullify that vow, um, and that's found in Numbers chapter 30, verses 3 to 15, if you're interested in looking through that a little bit more. Uh, that's a part of biblical headship, it's a part of how God has designed headship to work, but an unmarried widow, uh, a, a young man, a single man, a married man, they all, if they made a vow unto God, it was counted as final. God holds men to vows. And that hasn't changed today. Look, we're not in the Old Testament anymore. We know that. But, but, but God is still on the throne. God still hears you. And if you make a vow to God, do not defer to pay it. Far better, as we'll see in just a moment, that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. Far better. Because God has no pleasure in fools. What are the vows that Christians commonly make today? Think, well, pastor, we we don't really make vows anymore. Yes, we do. We just don't really think about them as vows as such. Uh, Oftentimes there's baby dedications, right, in churches where a parent gets up and holds his baby, as we talked about, was it last week, and and, and the parents say, I'm going to to serve the Lord, and we dedicate ourselves to, to, to raising that child. Is that not a vow to God? Or a building dedication? Someone vows to take that which God has provided and use it to the Lord. Lord, provide for me and I'll, I'll, I'll serve you with it. Or how about this one? Marriage. Isn't that a vow to God? When you stand with a pastor in a church or not in a church and you make those vows so, and, and, and you, you, you vow to one another, aren't you vowing before God? Isn't, isn't this in, in a Christian marriage at, at the very least? Some get more specific in their vows. They ask for things such as healing. God, heal me and I'll do this. Or men on the battlefield. God, get me out of this and I'll do this. Right? They ask for success. Say, God, if you give me success, I'll do this for you. Don't take those lightly. Don't make those lightly. More often it might be things that we vow to others before God. As God is my witness, I swear to God, so help me God, those sorts of things. Don't take those lightly. Solomon warns to be extremely careful with vows. Because we as humans have a tendency to treat vows loosely, but God does not. So Solomon says in verse 5, Better is it that thou shouldst not vow than thou shouldst vow and not pay. God is far more pleased with a person who never makes a promise to him than that you would make promises to him that you will not keep. And what is one of the primary dangers here? That in a moment of haste, of foolishness, because you're too busy with your mouth open and your ears shut, you make a vow that will bind you to something that you are unable or unwilling to pay. And while upon this earth, and especially in an irreverent society such as ours, it would seem as though it doesn't mean much. Right? A handshake doesn't mean much anymore. Somebody's word doesn't mean much anymore. But let me reiterate again, it matters to God. He highlights some of these dangers in verse 6. He says, Suffer not thy mouth to cause thy flesh to sin. Neither say thou before the angel that it was an error. Wherefore should God be angry at thy voice and destroy the work of thine hands? There's a danger that your mouth would cause your flesh to sin. That you would, in foolish haste, 
promise something, vow something before God that would back you into a wall that would cause you either to do wrong by keeping your vow or do wrong by being compelled to break the vow. There are several examples in the Bible of men who made rash vows that backed them into a corner and forced them into something that they regret. The most common of these, the most well-known of these, is Jephthah's rash vow in Judges 11, right? He tells God, God, if you will give me victory over my enemies, then the first thing that comes out to meet me from my tent, I will sacrifice unto you. And I don't know why, this is a time where his mouth was open when it didn't need to be open. God had already promised him the victory, hadn't he? God had already promised him the victory. He didn't have to make this vow. He makes the vow, he gets the victory, he comes back, and what comes out? But his daughter. So the Bible says that he was forced to either break the vow or perform the vow. The Bible says he performed the vow. There's debate about what that means. It's a debate for another day. We might also think of Herod, who in the days of John the Baptist arrested John but did not want John dead until his illegitimate wife's daughter comes and dances before him and he says, I vow I'll give you anything that you want. And she says, give me John the Baptist's head on a platter. Now he's between a rock and a hard place. Does he break his vow? Or does he kill John the Baptist? He doesn't want to do either. His Foolish speaking got him into a uh, got him into a pickle, got him into a bind. Let's not put ourselves there. Let's not make rash vows. Let's keep our ears open and our mouths shut. Let's slow it down. Let's think before we speak. Because I may be able to say something to one of you and say, Hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna come visit you this week. And then you don't see me. And pastor's not made good on his word. And you know what? We might still be okay even though I I failed to visit you. But God holds us accountable for what we say to Him. And in these instances, the Bible tells us, what does He say here? Neither say thou before the angel that it was an error. It's not enough just to say, whoops, my mistake, I take it back. Vows don't work this way before God. And so it is that through foolish speaking, we can back ourselves into a corner and force ourselves that, that the, our mouths will cause our flesh to sin. Now, if this is not feeling very close to home, let's, let's again try to bring this close to home. I know that this is a bit of a, of a, of a conceptual message in one sense, but let's talk about marriage. Let's talk about divorce. If this is a vow before God, then it's something that we ought to take very carefully, isn't it? If it's a vow before God, when a Christian breaks that vow, it can rightly be said that his mouth has caused his flesh to sin. That he has made a promise that he is no longer fulfilling, and so he is now going back on his word before God. He's entered into a vow that he did not fulfill. Far better, young person, for you not to make that vow than to make that vow and not pay. Far better for you just to not get married than to get married and break your vow before God. There might be some conceptual vows where the keeping of the vow might make us sin as well. I was talking to a man a couple weeks ago at the jail, and he said that he had made a vow. Uh, he, he said to be a believer, I have no reason to doubt him. Uh, as far as our conversation was concerned, he, he seemed well knowledgeable of the gospel. Of course, he's in jail, so there's that. But, um, but he, and, and, and the reason why he was in jail is interesting, because he said he had vowed a vow to someone. And he had vowed a vow that he was going to take care of them. And he still, his word was his bond. He grew up in one of those areas. He was an older man. He was in his 60s. And he still, there was, there was an element to him that says, if I, if I made a promise, I'm going to keep it. Well, this person, whom he said he was going to protect, uh, had no interest in 
being protected and got himself in a great deal of trouble. And this man, apparently, again, uh, in, in a desire to fulfill his vow, got himself into more trouble. Here's an instance where the man made a vow he never should have made, and it got him in a lot of trouble because of a rash vow with somebody who had no interest in helping himself. So the very efforts for which that man vowed a vow destroyed his end and his desire to help. These things can happen. Look, far better that we don't vow than that we vow and not pay. Far better just to keep our mouth shut and our ears open. Whether it's before God in worship, whether it's before God in vows, let's keep our ears open, let's keep our mouth shut until we know what we say is what we can do, until we know that what we're saying is right before God. Verse 7 says, For in the multitude of dreams and many words there are also diverse vanities. Notice the contrast. But fear thou God. Notice the, the contrast. Multitude of words and all the vanity, all the emptiness, all the worthlessness that comes from talking too much. Instead, Keep your mouth shut and fear God. He comes back to the analogy of dreams. In the multitude of dreams, there are vanities, things which take place but which are not real. And many words are said which have no real value. But instead of much speaking, instead of many words, just fear God. Understand that words matter. Trust that God hears what you say. Trust that your words have weight before God because they're spoken before God. This was the reality of other generations. Other generations, their word was their bond. You read anything about the Victorian era. These men, their word would be their bond even under death, wouldn't it? They do a handshake. It's as good as their, their name on a piece of paper. It's as good as their very life. They would make good on that. They would spend their entire lives paying off a, de- a vow of honor if they had to. And while sometimes we might recognize that to be a little bit misguided, here's what they believed. They believed that their handshake was an extension of their body, that their signature was an extension of their hand, which was an extension of their body, and they honestly and fervently believed that their words were not just uttered between one man and another, but their words were uttered between one man and another and God. And so they understood that their accountability was not just to that other person, but their accountability was to God. And so they were careful before they put their name on a piece of paper. And they were, so they were careful before they shook another man's hand in agreement. Why? Because they feared God. Because they were fearful of the consequences, not necessarily before just that man, but before God. And if I may put it this way, our default state in worship and in life before God ought to be Simply to keep our ears open and our mouth shut, ready to obey, unwilling to vow unless something dramatic compels us to do otherwise. And then and only then, in the utmost fear of God, recognition of the gravity of situation, make your vow before God and defer not to pay. If God is God, watch your words and make good on your promises. These are our two points this morning. And may I just say, if you have made a vow unto God, may I encourage you to make good on it? We'll continue this uh, next week with two other points in regard to this as we finish off the chapter, chapter 5. Let's walk through a couple of application points, a couple of questions as we apply this morning uh, and, and before we go our way. Question number one that I have to ask you is this. Do you worship reverently? Do you worship reverently? So much of why we do what we do and the way we do what we do at Legacy Baptist Church is that we would set an example of keeping our feet. 
in an irreverent society, can we as believers agree that God is better than that? Can we come together and acknowledge that God is worthy of our reverence? Now, as a church, uh, the, the church has what, what the church does. And the reason why we do things the way we do is to set a, an example, a bar. It's not to say that you have to do everything the way the church does it. The church has never asked that. And the church doesn't expect that. But what the church attempts to do is set a bar, an example. This is what leaders are supposed to do, right? Leaders are supposed to lead by example. You set an example and then others see an example of something. So why is it that you see me dressing up, not always in three pieces, but you see me dressing up in a suit on a Sunday? It's not because I feel like by dressing up in a suit I can make myself feel more godly than you. Or I can make you feel guilty about what you're wearing. Or any of those things. It's not about me expressing some sort of spiritual standing before God. It's simply that as a minister of God, I can set an example of reverence in this one area by my attire and by the attire of my family. The same can be said for music. Why is it that we have the music that we have, that we use sacred music, that it's that high level of music, that we don't allow certain things into the church... It's to be an example of what it means to worship God in reverence in music. The same can be said for prayer. That when you hear our times of prayer, you would hear in them reverence as unto the Lord. And even Bible reading. Why is it that I ask you to stand when we do our quotation work? If we do a a dedicated Bible reading, which we, we haven't done in some time, but when we do a dedicated Bible reading, why is it that we stand? It's not because we have to, but it's because it sets an example of reverence. Unto the Lord. So that when you seek for an example of what reverence of worship can be, you would say, you know what? My church sets a good example of what reverence and worship can be. And then you can use that as a template to help you guide your own personal decisions as to what reverence and worship should be for you. And that doesn't mean we're the only way, but we have set an example which puts effort into reverential worship. So the question is, how about you? Do you set an example? Do you, do, do, do you have reverence in worship? I'm not ju- again, I'm not just talking about coming to church. Parents, when your family worships together, when you have your Bible time or whatever it might be, is there reverence there? Do your children see, hear, feel that you love and respect God, that there's reverence in how you approach God when you pray When you study the Bible, one of the things that I've been working with with my children is, hey, when we pray, we need to sit still. And and that's not because you can't, uh, I pace when I pray. It's not about that. It's about, look, don't be looking out the window. Don't be poking your brother. Because when we're we're praying together, let's, let's have some weight behind it that we're coming to God. Let's let, let's make that matter a little bit. We can give with reverence. It's worship, isn't it? We can sing with reverence. We can pray with reverence. We can study with reverence. Do you? It's not to say you can't study your Bible in your pajamas in the morning. No, it's not not what I'm saying. It's not to say you can't sing a Bible song with a funny voice to your child. But do your habits and lifestyles, when engaged in deliberate worship, reflect reverence, to God. Are we teaching our children that God is holy and that this means they need to approach God in reverence? In an irreverent society, can we reflect reverence unto God?
What we need back in Christianity is a good dose of the fear of the Lord. That we would understand that God is holy. Cain was not the only one who failed to worship God reverently and so was rejected. As I mentioned, it would happen to the two sons. It would happen to, to um, uh, the golden calf and Aaron. It would happen in, in Jeroboam's day. It also happened to Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu. We read this in Leviticus 10, verses 1 and 2. And Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer and put fire therein and put incense thereon and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. And there went out a fire from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. Nadab and Abihu, the Bible uh, would go on to, to insinuate, at least imply, that they were drunk at the time. And they took fire that was not from off the altar, which was where the fire for the censors had to come from. They took fire that was not from off the altar, and they said, well, what does it matter? It's fire. And they tried to offer that incense unto the Lord with fire that was not from off the altar. This is false worship. Just a little thing such as where the fire came from. It shouldn't matter to God. Fire's fire, right? It matters to God. So they came to him, they offered false worship, and God killed them on the spot. And by the way, after that, God looked at Aaron and said, By the way, because your children were engaged in false worship and they died, you may not mourn them. Aaron was not even allowed to mourn them publicly, visually, lest he give some sort of confirmation to their irreverence before the people. Set an example, God said, for the people and reverence. These accounts in Scripture exist for our example, friends. Romans chapter 15, verse 4. Whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. Now, we don't, have in, we, we, we don't burn incense and have censers and such, so we can't draw a direct parallel, but we can draw a direct application, can't we? That we need to be reverential in our worship. Hebrews 10, verses 30 and 31. For we know him, that he hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me, I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Do we have that fear of the Lord? Do we have that reverence for him? Do you worship reverently? Number two, do you listen intently? As a Christian in relation to God and man, are you a talker or a listener? Are you so busy telling God what you want that you fail to align with what He wants? Are you so busy trying to fit God into your box that you fail to operate by the rules by which God has created heaven and earth? Do you have enough faith to believe that if God's way is really the best way, so that you'll shut your mouth, open your ears, and listen to Him, that you will be blessed? This is why God told Isaiah... Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, God wrote through Isaiah, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Or perhaps he warned us best in Proverbs sixteen two: All the ways of a man are clean in his own eyes, but the Lord weigheth the spirits. If we had time, I'd walk us through Psalm 119. All 176 verses, but that would take us like 45 minutes. So we're not going to do that today. Just to read it, it would take us 45 minutes, much less to talk about it. But maybe you should read Psalm 119 this week, which focuses upon the Word of God. God's design, God's words, God's demands, God's expectations. And listen to God. And to listen to Him means to obey Him. Are you a listener? Do you have the humility to know just how much you don't know? Young people, this is a hard one for, 
for you. This is a hard one for us. I'll lock myself in there still. It's hard for us to know just how much we don't know. And to believe, even though we think we know it all, that we don't. We talked about it a little bit in Sunday school, right? Parents have lived a lot longer than us, but somehow we're always convinced we know more than them. How does that work? It's something that's in us, young people. Something that's in us. Are you willing to just shut your mouth and open your ears and listen? Do you have the strength to admit just how weak you are? Do you have the knowledge to know just how much you don't know? When you enter into the presence of God, when you enter into the presence of His Word, when you read His Word and you say, I don't like what's being said here, do you have the humility to say, but that's okay because God said it? Are you listening? Are you more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools? Point three. Are you careful and faithful with your vows? We live in an irreverent society, a society which knows no honor. Words are empty. But our words matter, and they ought to matter, and that ought to be a distinction of you as a believer. Proverbs chapter 15, verses 2 to 4. The tongue of the wise useth knowledge aright, but the mouth of fools poureth out foolishness. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. A wholesome tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness therein is a breach in the spirit. Did you ever notice where Proverbs 15, verse 3, what it's stuck in between? The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. Have you ever noticed that it's in between two verses talking about what you say? In other words, God hears you. That's what, that's what that verse means. God hears you. In the dark corners of your own heart, in that room by yourself, when you're talking one-on-one with your friend, when you're on the phone with somebody and your parents don't know, God hears you. He does. He hears you. And when it comes to vows, God hears them and He knows them because the eyes of the Lord are in every place. Do you have control over your speech so that you say unto God that which is deliberate? Don't promise things you have no intention of performing. Don't say things you don't mean. And be careful and faithful with those things that you do promise. When you have promised, pay it. If you don't learn to control your speech, then you're, you're going to be in a hard way throughout your life. James warns us of this. He says in James 3, verse 2, For in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man, and also able to bridle the whole body. If you can learn to control your tongue, you can learn to control every part of you. Because the tongue is a hard thing to learn to control. Final point. Man can find lasting satisfaction. That's the point of Ecclesiastes, right? All of Ecclesiastes, can you find it? It's not found in money. It's not found in things. It's not found in relationships. It's not found in achievements. It's not found in jobs. It's not, that is not where lasting satisfaction is found. Lasting satisfaction is found though, can be found in God's design and when we align with it. The end of chapter, this chapter is Solomon's conclusion to his second major point. We'll magnify it next week. But let's just take one more portion of Scripture and think about it together as we close. Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11. We've sung it. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, 
enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey in the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and here it is, and in keeping of them, there's great reward. Not in hearing them, but in keeping of them, there's great reward. How are you doing today? You're a reverent worshiper. You're a careful speaker. Are you careful with your vows? Let's allow the word of God to inform our lives today and make us that which we ought to be, not just for God, but for one another. Let's pray.